Did we do this last week? No. 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 Okay, so we're finishing up Alfred Adler. <coughs> and um, if you remember from last week, well, actually two weeks. Oh, by the way, the exam was really very good. The class, does anybody take? <coughs> Has <clears throat> anybody taken a, st a statistics class yet? A stats class? So, you know what the normal... <clears throat> <clears throat> you know what the normal distribution is? You've heard of that before? So, like, what's the average range? What percentage of 100% is average? It's, well, 68% in terms of the normal bell curve. <clears throat> so 68% of you should have gotten like a 70, between a 70 and a 74, because that would be the average grade, which is a C. Uh, the average, in the, I didn't take the average, but 80% of you got an 80 or above. So that's way above, that's because of me. <clears throat> no, you did a good job. Nobody failed, which is really always cool for me. And um, what I found was there were, I think, four questions Three, three or four, I think four, that a lot of you got wrong that I gave you credit for because it was a bad, when that many people get it wrong, then it must be a bad question. <clears throat> so that, that's why I take a few more days to go through them to make sure that uh, everything seems to be <clears throat> okay on the stand. All right, so anyway, um, we're gonna go. <clears throat> we're gonna go for a while until I just can't take me anymore. <clears throat> so birth order, have you heard of that? <coughs> you son of a bitch. <coughs> Not you, me. <coughs> um, have you heard of the birth order, birth order effects before? For, for those of you that didn't, Adler believed that depending upon your ranking or order in your family, firstborn, middle child, baby, and only, who acquires different sort of <coughs> Personality characteristics. Right, so, how many of you were first born? Yeah, well, the bad news is that, okay, you're the first born. You tend to have the, um, well, most of you thought that was a good position to be in, but it isn't. So, the first born, you tend to be well intended initially because there's no what? There's no others, it's just you. You're the son. Okay, you're, you're the universe. You're the king or the queen of the family. And then what happens? We have another one. Yeah, there's another, there's an invader. Okay, and that's called the sibling. And that sibling can come, you know, any time past nine months after your birth. How many of you have a sibling that's like a year or so older than you or younger than you? All right, so it didn't take long. <clears throat> for, you know, you know, that to happen and another baby coming along. So what happens is you're no, you're no longer the king or the queen. You're lucky if you're a prince or a princess, all right? And suddenly, it's, oh, hi, Frankie, how are you? Let's go see the baby. Or, hi, Francine, how are you? We're going to go see the baby. Because the baby now has become, you know, the number one status holder. So I could be a year, year and a half old, and I'm already reflecting back on the good old days. I remember when, <clears throat> that I, I remember when I was king or when I was queen. What Adler feels is that the firstborn kids have the higher rates of being the, 
Be it neurotics, criminals, or drunkards. Okay? How many of you were middle, <clears throat> middle kids? Now, it's not because I am one, but it is because I am one. We, we're the best. Okay? We're, we're, and we'll see why, okay, in, in a little bit. So, we tend to be the most ambitious. <clears throat> why, why does the middle child need to be the most ambitious? <clears throat> the he, most ambitious. He in competition. Chris, I, I have to always fight for my place in the family. Right? There's the older kid that's the special older kid, and then there's the baby who's like, you know, the final tender queen. So I'm always trying to find my place and fight for my place in the family. <clears throat> I tend to be the most rebellious. <clears throat> I tend to be the most envious, again, because I'm always competing for someone else's mom or dad's or whatever the situation's affections. I tend to be a great mediator because I've learned to negotiate. I've had to negotiate my position within the family structure. And, and Adler felt, and I, I, I can't disagree with him, that we tend to be the better adjusted of all the children. <coughs> if, somebody, <coughs> if somebody remembers to email me, I'll bring, I've got like an Adler birth order thing. We can maybe do that next week. Just somebody send me an email, just say, you know, bring the birth order thing. And we'll do that real quick next week. <clears throat> and then who's the babies? Right. So uh, there's no, no arguing that. They tend to be the most spoiled, okay? They don't ever get hand-me-downs. They get everything what? New. Everything's brand new because they hold this special status. Uh, the problem, though, for them is just next to the first-born kid, they have the next highest rates of being neurotic or maladjusted. <clears throat> we all good here? Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then there's the onlys. Are there onlys? Are there any onlys here? Just a couple. Just a few people. Okay, well, that's, <clears throat> that's good. The only child, they don't really have a rival. They don't have any sibling rivalry. The only real rival they have is who? The parent of the same sex. That doesn't make any sense, right? No. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you were not thinking about the candies. Okay, it's going to be someone, someone of the opposite sex. Okay, so if my mom, if it's just me and mom, who's going to be my rival? Anybody who what? Anybody who tries to come and take mom. Okay, some intruder into my little dynamic duo with me and mom. If it's me and dad, it's someone who's going to potentially take dad from me. All right, so it's so it's always the person who's potentially going to threaten my position in the family because the other person may, you know, take away the attention and affection, etc. that I'm getting. <clears throat> they tend to be very demanding because, and spoiled because they've always gotten what? They've gotten their way. They've always gotten their way. And the problem for the only child, at least according to Adler, is that demanding way doesn't end with childhood. It continues throughout life. <clears throat> Another factor are the earliest memories. 
He felt that the earliest memories that you may have will also give give you or me some insight onto what or into what some of the troubling issues might have been for me. <clears throat> so, for example, my brother. <clears throat> My brother is six years older than me. So when I'm three or four, he's like what? If I'm three or four, and he's six years older, he's nine or ten. Okay, I just want to have another piece of candy. All right. So I remember, if I tell you the story, like I, used, I would tell you that I can remember Sunday mornings, my, my brother and father would go out to breakfast. And I remember going to the window and, and, and waving to them. What might that tell you if I shared that story with you? You wanted to go? That what? Maybe I what? Say it again? Felt left out. Felt left out. Yeah, like, like why not me? Why can't I come to breakfast too? Right? That would make you think that that memory is a what kind of memory for me? A happy one or a sad one? Sad one. A sad one. On the other hand, <clears throat> I could be waving, and, and guess what happens? If dad and brother are out to breakfast, it's me and who? Mom. It's me and mom. Okay? So those could be like, hey, take your time. We don't miss you at all. Maybe stay for lunch. I don't give a shit if you ever come back. <clears throat> okay? So, but those early stories may reveal to you some of the things that I encountered as a kid. <clears throat> and then the third category, he called childhood experiences, and there were three within that. Now, we don't use those terms anymore, but those were the terms that he used. Children with infirmities, okay? Those are today's kids that have some sort of developmental disability or something like that, okay? So some, of the, some kids have physical, some kids have mental infirmities, some kids have both. What impact does that have on the child? Well, for a number of, <coughs> for a number of years, I worked on a child study team in a public school system. And you know what that is? Uh -huh. yeah. So a child study team is a group of people that evaluates kids to see if they, if they need special education assistance. <coughs> so I can't tell you how many times we would test like maybe a seventh or eighth grade kid <clears throat> and he or she might be reading on like the second grade level. And then he or she may have a second or third grade brother or sister. And at night, who's helping whom? He helping. Yeah, the seven or eight year old kid is helping the older brother, 13, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old kid with reading work <clears throat> or geography or history or whatever the subject might be. How does that make me feel if I'm that eight-year-old, you know, eighth-grade kid? I feel good about who I am? No. No. Okay? <clears throat> if somebody has a physical disability, if, if I have difficulty with ambulation, like I can't run or walk all that great, and I'm watching my friends in the neighborhood outside running and jumping, skipping and playing, <clears throat> and I can't, but how does that make me feel? Sad. They're not so good about me. They're probably... <clears throat> Probably not so good, okay? So the question there is what can parents do to assist a child? They're going to focus on my strengths 
okay? They're gonna help me work on whatever weaknesses I may have, but you wanna focus on my strengths to make me feel good about who I am and, and, and cherish my accomplishments and not focus on the things that I want, <clears throat> the things that I can't do, okay? The second group in there are spoiled children. These are uh, people that, of course, we mentioned before, like the only kids or sometimes the babies, etc. The problem with being pampered is that you expect that throughout your whole life. Okay, so it's just not, again, with mom and dad, it's with your siblings, it's with your classmates, it's with your friends, it's with your you know, relationships, whatever it might be. <clears throat> You're always looking for someone else to take care of you. <clears throat> And then the third category, if there's you know, childhood experiences, he called me, these are the, <clears throat> the neglected kids. And these are the kids who are abused, neglected, etc. They become the enemies of society. So I'm sure you've heard this before, the abused become the abusive, the neglected become the neglectful, okay? That's a cycle that continues until there's some intervention there. <clears throat> Are we good here? Yes, no? <coughs> Question. Right. You're an only child. So somebody intruded on your fifteenth year? So there was a brother or a sister? Yeah, I mean, by that time, where are you? You're in high school, you're about ready to go to college. Yeah. I didn't mention that before, but I don't I thank you for reminding me. That birth order thing, oh, you know what, I don't want to, we'll do it next, I don't want to say more about that. We'll wait till we do this next week. You have a question? You have a question? She would be considered potentially a firstborn or an only child. I'll say this now, I don't want to give too much of the way, but Adler believed that if there's a five-year difference between kids, so like in many ways since my brother was six years older, that he would, Adler would suggest that I would be a, a firstborn kid. I would acquire firstborn characteristics because where's my brother by the time he's five or six? He's in school all day, and it's just me and who? It's me and mom, okay? He would also believe that if, if Frankie, little Frankie was the firstborn, and then three years later there's a little Francine, a change in gender would also make Francine potentially a firstborn child in terms of the characteristics. So five or more years or a change in gender could kind of mess up that thing. We'll, we'll see how that works out next week. <coughs> Donald <coughs> Donald Winnicott, uh, he's considered, or he, he is what we consider an object relations theorist. If you think about when we, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about Freud, uh, you don't really, we don't really begin to see the importance of the mother-father dynamic, the relationship there, until little Frankie is about three or so when he goes into the Oedipal crisis. 
right? So you don't recognize the importance of that relationship or the dynamic between the parent and the child until that stage. With object relations people, <clears throat> from the moment of birth, they recognize the importance of the social dynamic between mom and child, dad and child, etc. So, so again, from the moment of birth, that social dynamic, that's, that journey of social socialization begins, and, and for them, the development of self starts much, much earlier in terms of, or compared to like the Freudian model. So <clears throat> he believes that personality starts out as this mother-child dyad. We are one unit. Okay, a dyad is two, a unit of two. There's mom and me, and we are, we're fused together. There's that symbiotic relationship. And for at least the first four months, mom needs to be like almost this perfect mom. She has to meet and attend to all my needs. She's the primary caretaker. She feeds me when I'm hungry or thirsty. She changes me when I do the, <clears throat> the pee-pee poopy thing. She holds me, she tells me she loves me. Uh, she sings to me, she plays with me, whatever it is. Like mom, mom is this really, really, you know, great, great individual. <clears throat> but somewhere around the fourth month, that has to change. Okay, so you know the, you know the three little bears? Well, you don't know them, but you know, you know the, the story about the three little bears? You know, the mama bear, the papa bear, the baby bear? <clears throat> Well, there's this cute little story about the three little bears. And what did they eat? Porridge. They ate porridge. All right? Soup. All right. So we'll go with the modern version. They ate soup, okay? And the papa bear says, this, this porridge is too hot. And the mama bear says, and this porridge is too hot. And the baby bear says, and my porridge is too hot too. So they go out and play. They do whatever bears do when they come back in. And Papa Bear sits down and Papa Bear says, this porridge is too cold. And Mama Bear says, yeah, this porridge is too cold. And Baby Bear says, this porridge is just right. And that's what has to happen, okay? There's this shift from what he calls primary maternal preoccupation, which is the first four months, to this thing called good enough mothering. This porridge is just right, okay? So mom, mom needs to sort of let me tolerate or begin to tolerate <clears throat> her absence, her separation. She needs to let me experience anxiety because it's, it's when I experience anxiety that my ego begins to develop the skills to deal with that, okay? So somewhere around four months, <coughs> somewhere around four months, <coughs> excuse me, there's this shift from good, uh, primary maternal preoccupation to good enough mother, okay? Uh, transitional objects, anything that's transitional is something that helps you deal with some new situation. Okay. So a transitional object is the objects that little Frankie or Francine use to tolerate mom's separation or whatever discomfort I have. Okay. So what are some of the transitional objects that little Frankie or Francine use to deal with that anxiety? The blankie. 
okay? They hold up, they play with the blankie. What, what are other some, what are some of the other transitional objects? Pacifier. The pacifier, or the, what do they call it, binky or something? I don't know where the hell I get those names from, okay? So, so you know, the, the rattle shit, the little stuffed animals, any of those things that are in my little playpen area, I'll engage with those. Those are all like transitional objects that help me deal with or tolerate <coughs> mom's absence or, <coughs> or, or mom's separation. Okay? One of the transitional objects that we don't, you know, he doesn't really talk about per se, uh, some of you may have had one of these, some of you may know people that have had one of these, but there are some transitional objects that only little Frankie or Francine can see and hear. Oh, okay. What do they call those people? Imaginary friends. Imaginary friend. And some of you as adults, that's the kind of friends you still have. Okay? So I'm a little kid. Some kids have these imaginary friends. There's nothing wrong with them. It's okay. If you wind up having children and your children or your, your son or daughter as an imaginary friend, and you'll know they have them because you can't sit here because that's where little Frankie is. Or you can't sit there and eat because that's where little Frankie eats. Okay, and you can't lay in this part of the bed because little Frankie's there already. Okay? So you'll come to know that there's such a thing that exists. The only problem with a transitional friend is if they don't what? Leave. They need to go away at some point. When do they leave? Well, that's going to vary for, based upon the reason that they're there and the level of tension and anxiety that's causing that <coughs> transitional friend to be there. What about like sucking your thumb? Is that the same thing? That would be a transitional object. Yeah. So whether you're sucking your thumb or the, or the bottle or the, you know, the pacifier, yeah, any of those things are going to help little Frankie or Francie okay, deal with that. So the cool thing, again, if you see it, not if you see one, but if you're you have any children that do this transit, this uh, imaginary friend thing, just keep, I was gonna say keep an eye on it. You can't keep an eye on it, but just keep an eye on it in terms of like, you know, is the friend starting to not show up so much anymore? Sometimes what happens is the friend will go away and the friend will do what? The friend will come back. And generally speaking, that's okay too because the return visit is really just for the holidays. <laughs> You're not here very long. Where it becomes a problem. See, if I'm four or three or five or six, and I'm seeing some imaginary friend or hearing an imaginary friend, it's okay. Right? But if I'm 15 or 16, and I'm seeing something or hearing something that nobody else is, what are those for? Psychological problems. Those are, those are hallucinations. Okay? As a kid, it's an imaginary friend. As an adolescent or an adult, it's a, a more representative of a more serious, like potentially a more serious psychological disorder. <clears throat> We're good here? Transitional object is, is any job, any object that the child uses to deal with the separation and anxiety, etc. Yeah, so primary maternal preoccupation is, is, is mom on duty 24-7, like the first three or four months. She's attending to all my needs. She hears me fuss, she comes running in. She hears me stir or cry, she comes running in. She's going to make sure that I'm okay. 
But somewhere, and moms and dads will figure this out, not all cries are cries of discomfort. Some, like little Frankie learns very early on that if I cry, what happens? I get attention. So good moms and dads figure out the distinction between a, a, you know, a cry of distress versus a cry of this little son of a bitch is just trying to get my attention. <laughs> right? and, and if that's the case, you gotta let him what? Cry. You gotta let him cry, okay? Just make sure they're okay, but then just let him cry. <coughs> the behavior, <coughs> the behaviors. So that's, that's them, okay? What I am, who I am, etc. what I learned is a function of rewarded behavior or punished behavior and the repetition of those rewards and punishments, okay? So from a personality perspective, and if you buy into behaviorism, you play no role whatsoever in defining who, who you become. Like, that's really important. If you buy into the behavioral model, you, you play no role in defining who, who you become. You are conditioned, okay? You're rewarded or punished to, to acquire the kinds of traits and characteristics mom and dad wants you to acquire. Okay, we'll get to that a little bit. So what's cool here, and we'll see this again when we get into the therapies after the psychological disorders, is if behaviors are learned, then they can also be what? Unlearned. They can be unlearned. And if those behaviors are inappropriate, okay, some of the disorders we'll talk about when we get to disorders, then you can undisorder me, that's not a real word, but you can use that, undisorder me by rewarding and punishing the more, rewarding the more appropriate behaviors and punishing the undesired behaviors, or better yet, ignoring the undesired behaviors. So they're called behaviors. <coughs> they're called behaviors because they're only concerned with observable events. They're only concerned with behaviors. So who, who are they on the other, <coughs> excuse me, on the other end of the spectrum from? Think back a couple of weeks ago, Freud. Okay, Sigmund Freud, everything was occurring at an unconscious level. How you thought, how you felt, how you behaved was a function of unconscious activities or conflicts. They're saying, listen, if you can't see it, taste, <coughs> taste it, touch it, feel it, hear it, etc., why are we paying any attention to it? We should be focused on only the things that we can see, only the things that we can observe. So, you know these, I don't know if you know these people, but you've heard of these people before. You've heard of Ivan Pavlov and John Watson. Did those names ring a bell? How many of you have had like 101? Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna think they, I'm gonna hope they talk about them more in 101. Okay, if not, you're gonna get it anyway. Okay, so they're associated with classical conditioning. You know, Ivan's the guy with what? what what's, what's his famous stuff? The dog and the bell and, <clears throat> and salivation. Right? Does, that, does that ring a bell? Yeah. Right. So he's associated with classical conditioning. Edward Thorndike, uh, his, his theory is connectionism, uh, depending upon the book or the topic, etc. It's sometimes called instrumental conditioning. We're going to see what his major contribution is. 
And then, of course, I'm sure you've all heard of D.S. Skinner. He's associated with operant conditioning. I think it's safe to say that, you know, Ivan and B.F. Skinner are clearly like the Rudolphs of behaviorism. Right, who's Rudolph? He's not just a red-nosed reindeer. He's the most famous reindeer of all. Okay? Ivan and B.F. Skinner, they're the most famous, I think, without question. I would also suggest, as an aside bit of knowledge, if you have trouble sleeping, Pull up B.F. Skinner and listen to him. He'll put you to sleep, okay? He is as dry as, as the desert, okay? Monotone, if, if you're gonna pray for sleep so you don't have to hear him anymore, okay? <clears throat> Are we good here? <clears throat> yeah, we're gonna go over but you should put the names down. <coughs> Are we good now? Uh, it's Halloween. You can be a little nicer. <coughs> Yeah, that was good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to assume, I, I know this is probably incorrect, how many of you have the nerve, the unmitigated gall, the audacity to take Snickers bars? <laughs> I thought I made that clear that those Snicker bars belong to her. <laughs> I don't get that shit. <laughs> Are we good? Yes. <coughs> okay, so we, we begin with Ivan. <coughs> we begin with Ivan Pavlov. And again, I'm going to think, you may not recognize the symbols, but you're going to know, I'm going to think you know what they are. If not, you're going to know them before we leave tonight. The first one is the UCS, or the unconditioned stimulus. <clears throat> and an unconditioned stimulus is simply a, is a stimulus that causes an automatic response. An unconditioned stimulus is a stimulus that causes <clears throat> an automatic response. Okay, so in his study, there's food, there's the bell, and there's salivation. Those are the only three things in his study. And of course, the door. But we're not counting the door. So what's the thing that causes the automatic response? Food. The food. Alright, so the food is the unconditioned stimulus. <coughs> The, un <coughs> the unconditioned response is a response that's given when you present the unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned response is the response that's given when you present the unconditioned stimulus. 
So what's the response in that study? Remember, there's only food, the bell, and salivation. So what's the response? Salivation. Salivation is the response. You present the food, the dog will what? Salivate. Okay? His theory is like really one of the most straightforward of them all. <clears throat> the next thing is a neutral stimulus. There is really no such thing as a neutral stimulus. Okay. But what he meant by a neutral stimulus <clears throat> is a stimulus that's not causing the desired response. A neutral stimulus is a stimulus that's not causing the desired response. So what's left? The bell. The bell. Okay? If you ring a bell, the, the dog is not going to what? The dog's not going to salivate. If somebody rang a bell in the, top of the, in the back of the classroom, most of us would not salivate. Okay? Most of us would do what? We would turn around and look to see where, where the sound was coming from. That's what little Frankie the dog would do too. So neutral stimulus is initially a stimulus that doesn't cause excuse me, the desired response. Because he wants little Frankie to do what to the bell? Respond. To salivate. Right? That brings us to a condition stimulus. A condition stimulus is initially a neutral stimulus. A condition stimulus is initially a neutral stimulus. <clears throat> that following conditioning causes a condition response. I'll say that again. A condition stimulus is initially a neutral stimulus. That following conditioning causes a conditioned response. So what's the conditioned stimulus? The bell. It's still the bell. Okay? <clears throat> and then the last part of the sequence is this thing called the conditioned response, and that's simply a response given when you present the conditioned stimulus. Condition sti conditioned response is the response <clears throat> that's given when you present the condition stimulus. So what's the condition stimulus? The bell. When you ring the bell after conditioning, what's the dog going to do? Salivate. The salivation to the bell is a condition response. All right? Does that make sense so far? <coughs> okay. <coughs> stimulus generalization. Stimulus generalization says this, I will respond to a new stimulus. Generalization says, I will respond to a new stimulus <clears throat> based upon its similarity to the original stimulus. Generalization says, I will respond to a new stimulus based upon its similarity <clears throat> to the original stimulus. Can you say that again? Generalization says, I will respond to a new stimulus based upon its similarity to the original stimulus. <clears throat> so that's, here's what this means. You've conditioned little Frankie the dog to salivate to a bell. If you ring a bell that has a higher or lower pitch, I'm probably still going to what? I'm probably still going to salivate because the, the, although the pitch is different, it's still the sound of a what? Bell. It's still the sound of a bell. 
But if you've conditioned me to respond to a bell and you start flashing the light on and off, what am I not going to do? Respond. I'm not going to sell it because the light and the bell have really nothing in common. That makes sense so far? Okay. Extinction. <laughs> Every theory in learning has an explanation for forgetting. For the behaviorist, it's extinction. Okay. Now here's what extinction is. Extinction is a decrease. A decrease in the rate of response. A decrease in the rate of response due to repeated non-reinforcement. Extinction is a decrease in the rate of response due to repeated non-reinforcement. <clears throat> I need to say that again? Yes. Extinction is a decrease in the rate of response due to repeated non-reinforcement. Can I say it one more time? Extinction is a decrease in the rate of response <clears throat> due to repeated non-reinforcement. What he's saying here is if you keep ringing the bell and you don't reintroduce the food every once in a while, at some point you're going to ring the bell and I'm going to stop what? Coming. I'm going to stop salivating. Okay. If you keep salivating. ringing that bell without ever reintroducing the food, I, at some point you're going to ring that bell and I'm going to stop salivating. Food, so food is the unconditioned stimulus. Salivation is both the unconditioned response and the conditioned response. And the conditioned stimulus is the bell, at least in this study. Okay? And then his last concept is this thing called spontaneous recovery. <clears throat> and spontaneous, spontaneous recovery is this. After extinction occurs, after extinction occurs, you reintroduce the conditioned stimulus. After extinction occurs, you reintroduce the conditioned stimulus, you'll get a conditioned response. Spontaneous recovery is after extinction occurs, you reintroduce the conditioned stimulus, you'll get a conditioned response. So here's what he means. You kept ringing the bell without pairing it up again with the food, and at some point, I stop salivating. If you wait a week or two, and then you ring the bell, I'm going to salivate. Okay? That's spontaneous recovery. For which one? Okay, so the unconditioned stimulus is, is a stimulus that causes an automatic response. And an unconditioned response is a response that's given when you present the unconditioned stimulus. So for this to take place, <clears throat> for this conditioning thing, for little Frankie the dog to salivate to a bell, it's based on this law, this law of contiguity. This is the foundation of classical conditioning, the law of contiguity. And here's what it is, <clears throat> hopefully, associations are most easily formed, associations are most easily formed between experiences that occur close together in time. The law of contiguity. 
says, associations are most easily formed between experiences that occur close together in time. Should I say that again? Yeah. Law of contiguity. says, associations are most easily formed <coughs> between experiences that occur close together in time. So what's the association he's trying to form close together in time? The food and the bell. Frankie salivates. He keeps repeating them. And at some point, all he has to do is what? Ring the bell. Because I've associated, that law of contiguity says, I've associated the ringing of the bell with the presentation of food. So the bell is preparing you. The bell is the primer for me. Because I know then what's going to follow, the food. John Watson, uh, he's again a classical, <coughs> classical conditioning theorist. Uh, he's famous for, well he's famous, but two, two of the things he's most famous for is number one, his belief was that if you wanted to have psychology, and I think we might have talked about this a little bit if we did a history thing, uh, but if you wanted the, the field of psychology to be respected like the other natural sciences, then you needed to adhere to the scientific method. So I'm pretty sure we said that. We went over like independent variables and dependent variables and those things. That's what he's talking about. The natural sciences use experimentation. His belief is if you want psychology to be respected in the same way, you should follow the same experimental designs. The other thing he's famous for is the Little Albert story. Did you ever hear of Little Albert? So for those that don't know who Little Albert is, well, we all don't know who he is because he's not little anymore. But Little Albert is a subject in a study. And at 11 months old, I'm sure he didn't give consent. Hopefully somebody else did. So I'm this 11-month-old kid, little Albert, and I'm allowed to explore this laboratory area. And what Watson and his you know, associates are looking for are what are the objects that little Albert is afraid of, and what are some of the objects he's not afraid of. And one of the things that he seems to have no fear of is his little white rat. So he would, little Albert would have no problem like crawling up to or whatever, going up to this little white rat and so everything was okay. But this one day, little Albert approaches the white rat and when he gets there, somebody behind him makes this really loud noise that startles little Albert. And they keep doing that. Every time little Albert approaches the white rat, they create this little startling noise and at some point, Albert what? He avoids the rat. He, the rat. He develops a phobia. Okay, but he's not just afraid of the little white rat. Remember that thing called generalization. So he starts to experience fear with anything that reminds him of the little white rat. So any stimulus that he's can, that he can associate with the white <clears throat> the white rat, he would express or demonstrate some level of fear. So what's cool about the study, at least from Watson's point of view, is that psychopathology can be conditioned. You can, you can condition a phobia. 
And if you can condition a phobia, then you can, you can you know, condition other psychological disorders as well. And of course, the other side of the coin is if you can condition a phobia, then you can also treat it the other way. You can uncondition the phobia. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the, the therapies, okay? So clearly, it's not the result of an unconscious conflict. Who's the unconscious conflict guy? Sigmund who? Uh, Sigmund Freud. So Freud and the behaviorists are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay. Are we good here? <coughs> Edward Thorndike? He's, a, again, an American behaviorist. He introduces a whole bunch of laws into learning theory or behaviorism. Uh, the one that clearly is the most famous of them all for him is this law of effect. And the law of effect is this. If I behave in a way that results in something pleasant, I'll do it again. If I behave in a way that results in something pleasant, I'll do it again. If I behave in a way that results in something unpleasant, I won't do it again. i say that again, the law of effect, right? It says if I behave in a way <clears throat> that results in something pleasant, I'll do it again. If I behave in a way that results in something unpleasant, I won't do it again. What he's really talking about is rewards and punishments. Right, so rewarded behavior will increase the likelihood of me doing something over and over and over. <clears throat> and punished behaviors will decrease the likelihood of me doing something over and over and over. Initially, you don't have to worry about this for now, but I put that up there anyway. If something's symmetrical, that means it's equal in some sense. So he believed that the power of reward and punishment were equal. So rewarded behavior would increase, and equally, punished behavior would decrease. He changes his mind later. He comes to believe that rewarded behaviors will definitely increase behavior, but punished behaviors don't. They will only continue to, to reduce behavior if the punishing agent is still in jail, okay, or being punished. So the, the jail would be the perfect example. So if I commit a crime and they put me in jail and they take away my rights, freedoms, privileges, etc., while I'm in there, I can no longer hurt you directly, okay? But what happens when they release me? Have I learned my lesson? The answer to that question is some people do. But others, shortly after they're released, they re-enter the world of crime. And that's this thing called recidivism. They wind up going back into jail, okay? So the person or persons who were attacked or whatever by this person are only safe while he or she is being punished. When you remove the punishment, then once again, there's the chance of the not so great behavior happening, all right? And then B.F. Skinner, he's the guy associated with operant conditioning. All the, the same concepts that we just talked about with Ivan Pavlov, he buys into. So he, he buys into stimulus generalization, he buys into extinction, and he buys into spontaneous recovery. And we'll see how they differ. And I think it's the next slide. 
Are we good here? Yes, no? Question? differ from one another. Uh, if, you're, if, uh, if you're Ivan Pavlov, classical conditioning, only the law of contiguity, that's the, fun, that's the foundation for conditioning to take place. If you're B.F. Skinner, operant conditioning, you need both laws, the law of contiguity and the law of effect. The difference here, again, is um, in terms of the dependent or independent relationship between reward and behavior. In classical conditioning, the behavior is non-contingent or independent. The animal's behavior is independent or non-contingent of the animal's... Okay, so what's the rule in this class? No pictures. What's that? Right, no pictures. And now, now I can't breathe, I can't see. <clears throat> That's the friendly reminder. <clears throat> so, little, little Pavlov's dog, did he have to roll over to get the food? Did he have to beg to get the food? The answer to that question is no. Okay, so there was an independent relationship or a non-contingent re uh, relationship between little Pavlov's dog and the food or the reward. You know, I think it'll become clearer with the next example. In operant conditioning, the behavior is contingent. There's a dependent relationship. So what does he mean by that? What does B.F. Skinner mean by that? That little Frankie the dog will only get the reward if he or she does the desired behavior. Pavlov, I didn't have to do anything. I got the food, and then I responded. In operant conditioning, I have to do the behavior, and it's gotta be the correct behavior, okay? And then I get the reward. So, does anybody here have a pet or pets? Any of them do anything? Besides lift their leg and piss or whatever? Does anybody have a, anybody have a pet? What does your pet do? So, so does shakes paws, stands up, twirls. That's it. Does it roll or sit? And sits. Okay. So we'll 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 do this. What's the dog's name? Who? Oh, Hulk. Okay. So anyway, so we have this dog, right? We have Hulk the dog. And when you taught him or him, right, to uh, shake paws, what did you do? You said, hey, Hulk, shake, shake, shake mommy's hand. And Hulk's looking at you like, what the hell's up with that? Come on, mommy, shake mommy's, yeah, whatever, whatever you said. But he didn't know what to do. So at some point, you took, anybody train a dog? You take their paw, you shake it, and you give them what? A tree. 
You say, hey, we're gonna shake, come on, shake, 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 shake my hand. And, and you, you, they don't get it right away. You take their paw, you shake it, and you give them the treat. And at some point, you say, hey, shake my hand. And little Frankie the dog, what? Does the shake, okay? Doesn't get the reward until I do the shaking. So then, you wanna teach me to roll over. So you say to me, come on, Frankie, roll over. Roll over, little Frankie. And I'm saying to myself, shit, man, I just learned how to shake your hand. I don't even know, what, what is this roll over stuff? So what do you do? You take me, you forcibly roll me over, and you give me a treat. And then you take me, and you forcibly roll me over, and you give me a treat. And at some point when you say, roll over, little Frankie, I roll over without any help, and I do the treat. Now here's where the contingent thing or dependent thing comes in. You've taught me to shake and you've taught me to roll over. If you say roll over, Frankie, and I shake your hand, what doesn't happen? I don't get the reward because the reward is dependent on me doing or contingent on me doing the correct behavior. Right? That doesn't happen with Ivan Pavlov. Avalon's dog didn't have to do anything to get the food. But B.F. Skinner's dog has to do the correct thing. In classical conditioning, the reward is presented prior to behavior. So when, when did the food be, was the food before or after the salivation? It was before. For Pavlov, the reward was before. He presented the food and I responded. In operant conditioning, it's the other way around. I do the behavior, and then you get the reward. Okay, so it's behavior first, then reward. <clears throat> a positive reinforcement, these are pretty straightforward. Positive reinforcement is anything that you add to a situation or introduce to a situation that increases behavior. Right? A positive reinforcement <clears throat> is anything that when you introduce it into the situation, will increase behavior. Right, I'll say that again. A positive reinforcement or a positive reward is something that when you introduce it into the situation, you will increase behavior. So what are you introducing? You're introducing a reward. Right, so if you present a reward, that's going to increase behavior. <clears throat> a negative reinforcement is something that when you remove it from the situation, something that when you remove it from the situation will also increase behavior. So in both situations, there's an increase in behavior, and the first one you're introducing something, and the second thing you're removing. So who's the negative reinforcement, or what's the negative reinforcement? The negative reinforcement is the punishing agent remove the punishing agent, then the, the behavior that was stopped for a while will increase. So with few exceptions, you all have siblings. So some of you were the siblings that, I don't know, administered the punishment to your sibling, and others were the recipient, right? How many of you were the recipient of your sibling's punishment? The rest of you were the ones that beat up on your brothers and sisters. That explains a lot. 
<laughs> so my, my brother was how older than how much older than me? Six. Six. So for a short while, he was bigger and stronger. Uh, but he wasn't what? Smarter. He wasn't smarter. Because I was cursed with superior intellectual function. <laughs> by the time I was seven, I had superior strength too. But here I am, three years old. He's how old? Six. Nine. 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 So the son of a bitch used to love to punch me in the nose. Oh, yeah. yeah, he had. To, it's probably why I have such trouble with my sinuses. I gave more blood than the Red Cross. <laughs> so when you're three and you get beat up by your brother or your sister, whatever the case is, what do you do? You cry. So I start crying. I start crying. What happens? Mom comes running in and she says, "What's wrong?" And I said, "He hit me. He hit me." What did she do? Hit him? She beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and while she's beating him up, what am I doing? Laughing. I'm smiling. <laughs> this is great shit. Okay? Now even that, so again, because I'm free with superior intellectual functioning, it didn't take me long to figure out I don't have to get beat up to what? To get him in trouble. I can cry. Mom comes running in. She knows what just happened. I just have to look at him. He did it again, Mom. He hit me again. She beats him up. She says to him, don't believe him. He's like, I never touched him. And then she said, don't you ever call my little spe my special Frankie a liar. He's so special. He's S-I-T-M-T-M-T-L-T-M-C-T-T-T. Now, she's the negative reinforcement. While she's there, I'm safe. When she leaves, when she's removed from the situation, what happens to my brother's behavior? It increases again. Okay? That's a negative reinforcement. <coughs> a prim a primary, <coughs> primary reinforcement is something that's naturally rewarding. Primary reinforcement is something that's naturally rewarding. Those of you that came up, and took a piece of candy. That is something that's naturally rewarding. Okay? That's a primary reward. Is that the same for everybody? No. What's rewarding to me may not be for what? For you. So we've already declared what's the greatest of all candy bars? Snickers. Snickers. Okay? I don't see any left there, which means that more than one of you <laughs> took them, okay? which isn't very nice thing But it's an assorted pack because I knew not everybody's going to like the same thing. So you picked what was the rewarding thing for you. There were some of you who liked Twizzlers. I don't get that. <laughs> Are there any Twizzler lovers here? Anybody like Twizzlers? Hell yeah. Yeah, just a couple. Did you see any there? No. They should go out of business. They shouldn't be allowed to make any more Twizzlers. It's disgusting. So if my mom wanted me to learn something and she offered me a Twizzler, I'm going to tell her what? Okay. You can take that Twizzler and you know what? And on many occasions I did, and she did do what? <laughs> yeah, she taught me well about the... Uh, the use of the English language when it comes to talking to mom. A secondary reinforcement. <coughs> a, sec 
because secondary reinforcement is something that is initially not rewarded. A secondary reinforcement is something that is initially not rewarding, but if you keep pairing it with the primary reward, it becomes rewarding. I'll say that again. A secondary re reinforcement is something that is initially not rewarding. <clears throat> but if you keep pairing it with the primary reward, it will become rewarding. Okay? You all have that one? Can I say that again? Secondary reinforcement or reward is something that is initially not rewarding, but if you keep pairing it with the primary reward, <clears throat> it becomes rewarding. So the, I think the best example is this thing called money. When you're a little kid, what's money? You, you don't know what the hell that is. Right? If you're offered a, you know, a Snickers bar or this thing called money, you take the Snickers bar. Because money is this you know, piece of paper, different colors, numbers in the corner, and a, and a picture of some fugly person in the middle. So you know, how many of you are like creative? When you're a kid, how many of you like to draw? How many of you had a childhood? I just want to make sure. Thank you. So what can I do if I'm a kid? Three, four, five, six years old? Right? Well, actually, by then it's too late. I already know what money is. But if you're two or three years old and you're offered this thing of Snickers bar money, you grab the Snickers bar, you run to your room. You take out the paper, the scissors, the, your, your crayons. You cut a piece of paper out. You put some numbers in it. You take a picture of grandma, put it in the middle, and you got this thing called money. But something happens to each and every one of us at a different point, depending upon a whole bunch of factors, where you come to realize the power of what? Money. The more of that stuff called money you have, the more Snickers you can get. And it's just not the fun size shit anymore. It's the family size, and then the neighborhood size. And then you can buy, who makes it? <coughs> something that was not rewarding at all becomes very powerful. You're all here, right? Because you're hoping that when you're done with your three or four or five year you know, program here at Rutgers and, or grad school, that you're gonna make more what? Money. More money, okay? And then punishment. <clears throat> punishment is one of two things. It's either the removal of something rewarding, it's either the removal of something rewarding or the introduction of something aversive. Punishment is either the removal of something rewarding or the introduction of something aversive. So averse, something that's aversive is something that's naturally harmful. It's on the other end. One is naturally rewarding, the other is naturally harmful. So getting slapped would be naturally harmful. Electric shock. Is, is naturally harmful. Exposure to in-laws, naturally harmful, okay? That sort of stuff. And what, what do you remove? I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm going to think some of you have gotten into some trouble as you grow up. 
and your mom or dad or whoever your primary caretakers were, they took something you wanted. No more Xbox or no more this or no more that. Okay, that would be the removal of something that's rewarding. <clears throat> We're good here? <clears throat> so B.F. Skinner, he's a behaviorist. You would think that he would support the introduction of punishment <clears throat> to change behavior or to eliminate some undesired response. You would think he would be supportive of punishment. That's not the case. He didn't agree with the, the concept of punishment for these reasons. Number one, it causes, potentially causes, unfortunate emotional byproducts. So we're going to think this has happened to some of us. I know it happened to me. Uh, you do something not so cool at school. You're a kid. You know, you're like eight, nine, ten years old. You do something not so cool. You know, they call your parent. It's home. You tell them what happened. You get home. You get punished. And then your mom, assuming your mom is there first, says, uh, "Don't you ever do that again?" And you know, you get punished by mom. And and then she says the, these wonderful words: "It's not over for you." <laughs> Just wait until your father comes home. So instead of watching the clock with a lot of excitement and encouragement and enthusiasm as it's getting closer and closer to his or her you know, arrival time, what do I begin to experience the closer we get to their arrival? Anxiety. Anxiety and fear. That's the unfortunate emotional byproduct. It, justify, it justifies inflict, <coughs> inflicting pain on others. It's, it's the child, the kid is learning that under certain circumstances, it's okay to what? It's okay to hit someone. Right? That's certainly something you don't want to have happen. You don't want your kids to think that under certain circumstances, it's okay to hit someone. Number three, it suppresses behavior. If the behavior is suppressed, has it gone away? No. no. It's just not being shown. It's just not being exhibited. Right? So when mom was there, it suppressed my brother's behavior. When you removed mom, the suppressed behavior <laughs> wasn't suppressed anymore. It reemerged. Number four. It replaces one undesirable response with another. It replaces one undesirable response with another. So, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but did you ever, you don't have to answer this question, but some of you might have gotten spanked by your, your parents or parent, right? So you get spanked, I can't, I still can't, I still can't remember this, you're getting spanked, and what do you do when you get spanked? You're a kid, four, five, six, seven years old, you what? You cry. And then your mom or dad who's ever spanking you comes out with this pearl of wisdom. You better stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Did you ever hear that before? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And then when you tell them what the hell do you think you're doing to me now, <laughs> right? you know what happened after that. I learned another lesson. It's sometimes better not to say what you think you should think you should say. 
Sometimes silence is the better option. And then number five, it indicates what the person should not do, not what one should do. Number five is the distinction between punishment and discipline. Okay? Punishment is I'm just getting punished. And there's no instructional value to it. I'm just learning that, uh-oh, I gotta get better at doing this or I'm gonna get hit again or punished again. But discipline is where <laughs> it hopes your mom or dad says to you, I want you to go to your room. And I want you to think about what you did. And when you figured out why that's wrong, come back down and we'll talk about it. That's instructional. That's discipline. You're still going to get something. Okay, but hopefully there you've gained some understanding about why that, wouldn't have, that wasn't the great choice of words or the greatest behavior. Okay? And then number six, it elicits aggression towards the punishing agent. And what he meant by that is pretty straightforward. You yell at me, I yell back. You push me, I push back. You slap me, I slap you back. You and punch you me, I punch you back. <laughs> you take out the frying pan, I take out the griddle. Okay? What happens with, es with, with, with aggression? It escalates until somebody like maybe seriously hurt. So you don't want to escalate. That you, you want to avoid that as much as possible. So what should be done to eliminate the undesired behaviors? If little Frank or Francine has just engaged in a series of behaviors or made some comments that you don't want me to ever do again, you should ignore them. Okay? Because what should happen to non-rewarded behavior? What's that term? Extinction should take place. If you don't reward the behavior, then the behavior should extinguish. Of course, we know that's not what? That's not true. You've had a whole bunch of non-rewarded behaviors that you haven't forgotten. And given the right set of circumstances, you will what? You'll do them again. Okay? And this one here, on this great Halloween night, where candy was provided, and some people took two, three, four pieces of candy. <laughs> this could be the, the last, last one. one. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs>